Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we're going to be talking with Jason Heller, a music journalist who wrote a really interesting new book called Strange Stars. The uh, subtitle is David Bowie, Pop Music, and the decade sci-fi exploded. And what it really does is trace the history of an intersection of sci-fi and rock. And it turns out there's an entire kind of canon of science fiction rock, some of which you may know, some of which you probably don't know, some of which comes from artists you might expect, some of which comes from artists you'd never expect. So I'm happy to have Jason on right now. Hey, Jason. Hey, how you doing? Good. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, before we dig into the kind of blow-by-blow blow of uh, science fiction and rock, what was your biggest sort of takeaway? What does this all mean? Because there's an incredible amount of sci-fi ideas and sort of ideology embedded in decades' worth of rock and popular music. But what does that mean? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, I focused this book on the 70s, um, which to me was the decade that science fiction and music um, truly melded uh, in a way that um, that the artists involved took very seriously and that the science fiction world to a certain degree also took very seriously. Um, and there's so much else obviously going on in the 70s, um, politically, socially, technologically, culturally. And in a way, I thought that the connection between science fiction and popular music in the 70s actually reflected a lot of things, paralleled a lot of other things that were going on um, throughout that decade. Um, that, that in a way, it was kind of a microcosm of how technology was developing, how the space program and how uh, we as human beings were, were coping uh, with this whole idea of of leaving uh, the womb of Earth. Um, and uh, I think all that, and a lot of fears as well, fears about the future, fears about technology, um, automation, uh, things like that. I think that all kind of came together. Um, and then even just on a technical level, um, the fact that the technology being used to create popular music um, was undergoing a radical change in the 70s. I think the kind of the, the main takeaway when when I finished the book and kind of looked back at it was that the 70s was this really tumultuous time that was reflected in many ways in this this seemingly trivial crossover between science fiction and popular music. It's interesting because the 70s story really begins around 68 when 2001 a space oddity comes out, right? Yeah, that's definitely when science fiction cinema began to take itself very seriously. And I think at the same time, it is when uh, science fiction music um, began to take itself 
very seriously. Uh, Paul Kantner from Jefferson Airplane being kind of the foremost person really at that time, and then Jimi Hendrix as well. You know, before that, um, science fiction cinema largely seen as a novelty. Science fiction music, there had been songs before uh, that dealt with science fiction, but they were they were novelty songs, and I have nothing against novelty songs, and that's not a judgment call. Um, but it meant that the artists creating those songs didn't necessarily have anything invested in science fiction or have any kind of real connection to it. It didn't really resonate with them. It was just a silly, fun thing to do, uh, or maybe a way to to make a buck. And then, uh, you know, simultaneously, as rock began to become more progressive, so did rocks uh attachment to and alignment with science fiction the hendrix thing is interesting as with a lot of these guys you know there's a lot of talk in the past decade of how you know being a geek is cool now and things geeky things are suddenly mainstream and cool and the fact is a lot of these people who were you know some of the the coolest people of all time Jimi hendrix david bowie were total nerds <laughs> They, they really were. They really were. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I write in the book, uh, you know, some of the anecdotes about uh, Jimi Hendrix growing up as a kid and insisting on being called Buster because his hero was Buster Crab, uh, you know, who played Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers in the old uh, serials. And, um, you know, very, uh, Hendrix in particular was a very introverted kid. Um, and, you know, I think that. You know, in the act of of deifying um, people like Hendrix and Bowie, who deserve, because of their contributions to culture, they deserve to be deified, in my opinion, um, that in doing so, we also kind of lose sometimes the complexity of some of these people. When you become an icon, um, well, you're kind of contained by that iconic image. So what was really important to me was to kind of dig and find um, an alternate portrait of some of these artists that we know very well, that we think we know extremely well, um, and that maybe we kind of take for granted what that perception of them um, has always been. It was somewhat uh, less surprising to learn that David Crosby, which I kind of knew, was also a, a huge yeah. sci-fi kid. Uh, and yeah, he's never been. Yeah, that's he's never been secret about that. Yeah, the birds actually attempted to make a song for 2001 A Space Odyssey before it ever came out. The song is called yeah. Space Odyssey and we should hear that. They were so into this that they based it on the short story, the Arthur C. Clarke short story that the movie was eventually based on and that Arthur C. Clarke then expanded upon in the book. So that that's some... In, in fact, the, the shape of the monolith is wrong in the in the song. Yeah, yeah, because it's based on the Sentinel, uh, which is the Arthur C. Clarke short story that had actually been published in the 50s that, of course, Kubrick adapted uh, with Clarke's help for 2001. And, yeah, it's so intriguing to me because the birds at that point were, you know, rock stars uh, of the the highest magnitude and really what they were attempting to do with that song Space Odyssey was use that to convince Stanley Kubrick use them to write the soundtrack for the film I mean that's just how into 
the, you know, the whole science fiction scene, both him and Roger McGuinn uh, were. Um, and of course, that, that never worked out. Um, but, uh, but they still recorded the song. And of course, it wasn't the only science fiction song that the birds wrote. And then, of course, the, the next year, we had the moon landing. A couple things happened. The Pink Floyd were hired by the BBC to compose something called Moonhead while, I guess, while on TV, while the, what, what exactly was, was going on there? Yeah, so uh, in 1968, during the moon landing, um, and, you know, this just kind of goes to the point of, you know, all these stories um, that, that involve popular musicians and science fiction, they don't really seem to fit the, the prominent narrative, the prevailing narrative. And so, so many of these interesting stories just kind of get left on the side, or, or maybe those of us who, who write and are kind of caretakers of these narratives, um, that, you know, we're not particularly interested in, in some of us in science fiction, and so it, it just doesn't seem to be as important. But to me, I love Pink Floyd. I, you know, I love them forever, like, like so many of us have. And this seems profound to me, yet something that is rarely mentioned or talked about was during the moon landing in 1968, the BBC is, of course, showing, uh, you know, the live footage uh, of the American astronauts on the surface of the moon and reporting continuously. And they hired Pink Floyd <laughs> to come into the studio um, and improvise because, of course, Pink Floyd, even at that time, was known for, you know, spacey music, as it were. Uh, and they improvised a piece of real spacey blues called Moonhead um, that was broadcast live during the moon landing. Um, and it was, you know, never recorded. You can go on YouTube and someone's kind of taped it off uh, some old, t- you know, off TV or whatever. Yeah, um, let's, let's hear a little bit of that uh, recording for a second. where in the book, um, Strange Stars, when I wrote it, I really wanted to work in not just science fiction, but real-life scientific advances. Um, There's plenty of examples of how Pink Floyd, for instance, um, both with Sid Barrett and after, drew direct influence from the work of Michael Moorcock, Arthur C. Clarke, and on and on, um, all these legendary science fiction authors. But it all kind of dovetails with these remarkable um, developments, milestones in real life science. Now, uh, just a few days before Apollo 11's landing, David Bowie put out Space Oddity. And let's hear that for a moment. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your bro- so the thing with Space Oddity, that was actually also played on British TV during the coverage of the moon landings. BBC was pretty hip, on a side note. But that song holds great significance in Bowie's career and also in your book. Explain a little bit about that. Yeah, actually, when I envisioned Strange Stars, the whole idea... It was one thing to say, okay, I'm going to talk about science fiction music of the 70s, but I wanted something a little more tangible um, to really 
define that era. And I realized that Space Oddity came out in 1969, and then the sequel to Space Odyssey came out, um, Ashes to Ashes, of course, came out in 1980. Um, And that perfectly bookended the 70s. So to me, there's a lot of preamble um, going into the main narrative of Strange Stars, but it's really Space Oddity that kicks it off. And yeah, as you mentioned, the book details this kind of crazy um, uh, setup between Bowie coming out with Space Oddity, um, the song not really performing that well, and then once it begins being used by the BBC during their coverage of Apollo 11, all of a sudden it clicks. It's like this huge, just just kind of, you know, uh, um, perfect moment of crystallization in, in the zeitgeist, as it were. And that song became uh, the soundtrack to that moment in time when human beings first put their foot on another heavenly body. And the profundity of that act you know, maybe is a little bit dull to us who weren't born yet, like me, uh, or who were pretty young at the time, and who grew up with it just being a matter of fact that people were able to travel beyond the Earth. But, you know, it wasn't quite the same as someone traveling to the bottom of the ocean. You know, it really, uh, you know, the fact that we were leaving Earth's bonds and were able to move beyond... I think was so symbolic to so many people and David Bowie just happened to be that person at that time who perfectly captured that moment in song. People have made a lot of the line, uh, planet earth is blue and there's nothing I can do. Even, you know, that it sort of foreshadowed a turn away from sixties idealism and also a sense that, you know, uh, all this space and transcendence stuff wasn't actually going to work. I think Bowie himself hinted at that, that we were doomed really to be earthbound despite everything. Yeah, and that's what's obviously Bowie has, you know, plenty of uh, apocalyptic and dystopian and, and pessimistic uh, lyrics in his sci-fi songs. But yeah, you're right. I, I, you know, I think that they're, you know, it gets oversimplified, of course, that it was the summer of love and then the 60s went dark and there was Altamont and et cetera. Um, and that, you know, that all definitely was true. Um, but I think that it had more to do it had more to do than just oh the you know the hippie ideals turned and and soured and darkened. Um, I think that it you know actually had a lot to do um, with the fact that all of a sudden we were traveling beyond, and I do mean all of a sudden because it happened really quickly in the sixties. Uh, all of a sudden we were on another chunk of rock. Uh, humanity had had exited Earth. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt, and I'm talking to Jason Heller, who has a book out called Strange Stars about the intersection of sci-fi and rock and roll, especially in the 1970s. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast. 
part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. There's a there's a bunch of things that happened around 69 as the 70s kicked off. Um, one was that uh, George Lucas was at Altamont, which is always something I've been fascinated with. It's such a weird talk about confluence. It's it's such a bizarre thing that George Lucas was at Altamont with a camera uh, <laughs> trying to film stuff for what would end up being Gimme Shelter, except uh, what I didn't know, I think, until I read your book is that his camera didn't work. Well, actually, it kind of, uh, you know, kicked off a, a very interesting uh, set of parallels between Lucas um, and music uh, in general. Of course, there wasn't really a whole lot of science fiction going on at Altamont, um, but Jefferson Airplane played, uh, and Paul Kantner at that point had already had a couple of science fiction-themed songs um, under his belt with the band. He was uh, extremely immersed in science fiction, really kind of second only to Bowie when it comes to the uh, length uh, and depth of his association with and love for science fiction when it comes to, you know, more mainstream rock stars. So when Paul Kantner put out Blows Against the Empire, his solo album with members of Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and so forth. And what, and what um, song, what, we should play something from that. What song should we hear from that album? Uh, American Mau Mau would probably be a good one. We are the present, we are the future. Here you have George Lucas um, filming Jefferson Airplane at Altamont, and of course uh, Lucas, uh, you know, lived not far from the, the Bay Area, and very may well have been a big Jefferson Airplane fan back then. But George Lucas begins the journey toward creating Star Wars really in the early '70s, and it's the same time that Paul Kantner doubles down on science fiction in his music um, to the point where he almost kind of hurts himself um, commercially. Um, You know, for the most part, he was kind of out there on his own and just kind of opening up this new territory. As you point out, they end up on the utterly infamous and terrible Star Wars holiday special many years later. That is the strange full circle of that. You know, Jefferson Airplane and George Lucas, you know, each in their own way. And of course, by the time Star Wars came out, they were Jefferson Starship. Um, another reflection of, of Kantner's increasing obsession <laughs> with science fiction. But they wound up uh, together again. You know, first there's Lucas filming Jefferson Airplane at Altamont, and then uh, years later, Jefferson Starship is performing on the, the Star Wars um, you know, holiday special, you know, which uh, obviously is panned for its cheesiness and, and completely considered uh, not canon in any way, shape, or form. And in a way, it really does, even that shift really symbolizes, you know, what uh, had happened um, with science fiction music throughout the 70s. It began as an association that was very closely tied to progressive rock and um, 
very serious themes and these these very studious and elaborate ways of incorporating science fiction into music. And then by the time Star Wars came out and science fiction was just mainstream, it was the lingua franca of of pop culture um, there. And it, you know, it basically brought a lot of um, a more shallow appropriation of science fiction and I'm careful about saying that because I have a great affection for even the shallow uh, appropriations of science fiction and 70s music as I write about in the book um, so it's not a, again not a judgment call let's hear the uh, Star yeah. Wars theme the disco Star Wars theme by Miko which kind yeah. of I think gets at the essence of what you're talking about here Yes, we've jumped now to the uh, late 70s, but there was kind of an explosion of less sci-fi, maybe just sort of space disco followed from that, right? Right, and there's varying degrees of it. So even when people talk about space disco now, you know, they think of Miko and his Star Wars theme, as they should. It was, you know, obviously extremely popular. Um but also, uh, you know, any like disco artist that sang about outer space and was wearing some giant, crazy, glitzy, glittery outfit. But as it turns out, some of those people, strictly opportunists, making very fun music that very, reflected very much the mania for science fiction in the wake of Star Wars. But then there was a lot of other people that saw it as an opportunity to be able to commercially express their very long-held and deep love of science fiction. So Miko is a great example, uh, Domenico Minardo. You know, he had been um, producing disco for years and years. He has a jazz background. He, you know, really just a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. But when Star Wars came out, he loved science fiction his whole life, and he was so blown away, he saw Star Wars again and again in the theater in that summer of 1977. And then he was like, I've got to turn, take my two loves, disco and Star Wars, and I got to put them together. Everyone told him he was crazy. The record label wanted nothing to do with it. He had to fight to get that made. It was not a sure thing uh, by any means. Um, and then, of course, it got made and went platinum. And it, it, in the <laughs> ironic twist, winds up being nominated for a Grammy opposite John Williams' original score for Star Wars right. uh, in 1978. So to uh, jump back to the 60s before we move back to the 70s, you know, Hendrix really was a, a cool case of this. I mean, uh, Up From the Skies is just blatant science fiction. We can hear that for a second. This is why I'm so concerned And I'll come back to find The stars displaced And the smell of a world and people are less aware that Purple Haze, right, was adapted from some old sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. The, it, the phrase came from uh, the fiction of uh, Philip Jose Farmer, um, where there was a description of an astronomical phenomenon uh, as a purplish haze. And... Jimi Hendrix loved that story. He was in London, and he's just kind of freeform, uh, you know, writing some free associative 
poetry slash fiction. And he takes that and whittles it down. Um, and of course, the original long draft of Purple Haze had way more science fiction in it. It had all this stuff about um, this war on Jupiter and all this stuff. He trims it all the way down, those lyrics, so that they would actually fit in a three-minute song. Um, but he retains um, his modification of that purplish haze phrase that he got from Philip Jose Farmer, um, and then that became Purple Haze. I think most people have no idea of that. And then the other influential movie, in addition to 2001, was Clockwork Orange. And that really spread, its influence spread pretty wide. Describe how that worked. Yeah, so, uh, you know, um, Kubrick, after the success of 2001, tries his hand at another science fiction adaptation of a completely different kind, Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. And, you know, punk was still... Uh, a few years away, depending on how you want to define the beginning of punk, um, when Clockwork Orange came out. Um, but in a lot of ways, it formed uh, this template for what a lot, and of course, they, eventually there would be punk rockers, the addicts, who would dress exactly like um, uh, characters from the book, or from, the, from Kubrick's film. But the thing about uh, Clockwork Orange was um, it was dystopian in a way that was very eerily believable. Um, there isn't like tons of technology uh, or robots, well, a little bit, but there's not really this whole, uh, you know, um, glittering future, even one where things go wrong. Like 1984, it's a pretty grim, technologically depressed future. And I think that struck a lot of chord a lot of chords with a lot of people who were coming out of um, the hippie era, David Bowie being one of them. David Bowie, you know, uh, I think identified in A Clockwork Orange um, kind of what an image, a vision of what the soured hippie ideal could look like, mm. um, where it has degenerated into, instead of a collective uh, peace and love thing, it's just gangs. That informed um, lots of his science fiction works. Uh, Clockwork Orange um, you know, has a lot uh, to do behind Ziggy Stardust. Um, there's a lot of it, especially in Diamond Dogs, um, along with 1984. So the aesthetic of that film really did uh, strike a lot of musicians, um, and all the way throughout the entire 70s really influenced them. You point out that Bowie actually dressed the spiders from Mars more like characters from Barbarella, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, Barbarella, even at that point, had already become a cult film. And just the sheer ridiculousness of it uh, and the, the camp of it. We should describe that movie for people who are not aware of it because it's now a million years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah, Barbarella starring Jane Fonda. Uh, you know, this um, you know film about a future um, where technology and decadence and sexual pleasure and sensuousness have all kind of become um, the, the driving force uh, of society uh, and of culture. And, you know, a lot of it's just kind of like uh, an excuse for some... Uh, Jane Fonda cheesecake, and then a lot of it is um, really kind of making a satirical point 
um, about free love, uh, about um, the changing mores uh, when it comes to masculinity, femininity, the patriarchy, and feminism. Um, that's kind of all rolled up in there. Those are all that, that's such fertile ground for the, the glam rock movement that, that sprang up, obviously, with Bowie being uh, a central um, aspect of that. Um, and so glam and science fiction really did kind of draw from a similar conceptual wellspring besides just the aesthetics of it, besides just, okay, Barbarella's full of people in these glittery outfits, sexy glittery outfits, and that's also kind of what glam was as well. Um, but both of them were kind of toying with uh, these changing roles between genders, um, fluidity between genders that that was being uh, more openly expressed. Um and just a, a freer embrace of sex uh, in society. Bowie got worried that he would be kind of pigeonholed as an alien, as a sci-fi thing, and then despite all of that, he returned to it all with uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Yeah, he had, you know, after Diamond Dogs, which was a science fiction concept album, originally supposed to be an adaptation of George Orwell's 1984, he really abandoned the science fiction themes that he had been doing pretty steadily uh, since even before uh, Space Oddity. He had been writing science fiction songs even before that, earlier in the 60s. So he, that had kind of been his thing for a while, and I think he realized he was becoming really known as that. Um, he had already killed off Ziggy Stardust. Um, Halloween Jack was kind of his character, uh, not quite as well-established and well-defined as Ziggy Stardust, um, but Halloween Jack is kind of who he was during um, Diamond Dogs. So he decides he's going to just cut all that. He uh, goes in to make Young Americans, and there's it's not science fiction at all. Um, it is a soul album, and he seems to be really kind of drifting away from that. Um, but then he had been wanted, he wanted to be in films and cinema for a very long time. And he finally gets the opportunity in Nicholas Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth. And so he is a little bit torn because he doesn't want to be typecast as a science fiction guy. He wants to show that there's more to him than that. And maybe a little bit savvily, he's thinking this probably this trend probably can't go on forever anyway so i better you know not put all my eggs in the science fiction basket um but this role is just so perfect for him um based on walter tevis's science fiction novel the man who fell to earth that he just he has to take it and of course it winds up um you know being uh one of his greatest film roles uh and so he gets sucked back into it and then from there it, it becomes interesting because that's when he begins teaming up with Brian Eno, who, of course, absolutely immersed in science fiction in many ways throughout his career. And they begin working on the Berlin Trilogy, which doesn't quite have so much science fiction in the lyrical content as it does in the actual sounds and yeah. the actual methodology and process and technology that was used on those three albums. 
And even I think the instrumental side of low, uh, Bowie said, was actually reflecting the mental state of the of the character in Man Who Fell to Earth. So there's that, and then, and then of course at the end of his life, he wrote Lazarus, which uh, returned to that character, and you know in his final music videos alluded to Major Tom. So it obviously was very very close to his heart. That may have been you know the final alien he embraced. You know that that was his that was the definitive alien persona, perhaps more than Ziggy Stardust who, by the way, was not an alien, we learn. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's something. And, of course, a lot of this is, you know, Bowie contradicts himself a lot in <laughs> interviews over the years, as, you know, he's wont to do. Um, and so, But really, yeah, the, the definitive uh, interpretation that comes out, uh, including through Bowie's own explication, is that, um, yeah, Ziggy Stardust is common it's almost like the Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster thing you know where the monster gets called Frankenstein but of course it's actually the doctor not the monster named Frankenstein um Ziggy Stardust isn't actually the he's he's not really the alien in the story uh in uh, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust on the spiders from Mars. He is uh, an Earthling who is being contacted by aliens and becomes sort of their their emissary or representative or avatar on Earth. And you know, it ties back into a lot of very interesting beliefs that Bowie had in the late '60s, uh, including, um, and this is been confirmed by uh, by his wife Angela at the time that Bowie, you know, really believed that he was, uh, and maybe this might have been a little bit earlier on, uh, and certainly there's some drugs involved, but he really did believe that aliens existed and that they only contacted certain special human beings, individuals on Earth, and communed with them or infused them with energy, uh, infused them with enlightenment. Um, and he believed he was one of them. Uh, and that is Ziggy Stardust. That is the story of Ziggy Stardust, exactly. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt, and I'm talking with Jason Heller about his new book, Strange Stars, David Bowie, Pop Music, and the Decade Sci-Fi Exploded. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm talking with Jason Heller about his new book, Strange Stars, David Bowie, Pop Music, and the Decade Sci-Fi Exploded. And we were just talking about Bowie's alien thoughts over the years. Before we move on, we should play Ashes to Ashes, which we mentioned earlier uh, as kind of the sequel to, to Major Tom. And, you know, it says Major Tom is a junkie, which is confusing. At some point, he claimed that all of Space Oddity was actually about being a junkie, which I don't think is true. But, you know, people say a lot of things. We know Major Tom's a junkie, strung out in heaven's Yeah, he definitely liked to revise. It wasn't just him reinventing his present. He reinvented his past often as well. So, yeah, I think that, what you know, he revised his story as he went along uh, to however it suited his purposes. But Ashes to Ashes, you know, came at a really interesting time in his career. Uh, and he it came out in 1980. He had... Um, reached this pinnacle of this avant-garde electronic rock with Brian Eno that he had made. And there was this whole entire movement of um, electronic uh, post-punk groups we call synth-pop or, or new wave or whatever umbrella term um, 
you know, that's that's kind of most convenient for them. But the, all these bands are coming up in the wake of Bowie, very much influenced by Bowie, Gary Newman, uh, the Human League, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, um, Joy Division and New Order. And Bowie both has influenced these people um, and is being influenced by them. Um, yeah. Well, let's jump back to 1971 for a minute because, and yep. this strange case of the band Hawkwind, which is, I think for, for many people might be one of those bands they've heard about more than they've heard, but they were a very cool, very messed up band. <laughs> and uh, what Hawkwind song should we play? Space is Deep, something like that one? Oh, that would be perfect. Yeah. yeah let, let's hear Space is Deep. So, you know, Hawkman was was Lemmy from Motorhead's first band. They took enough LSD that they probably thought they were in space half the time. They had a collaborative relationship with the uh, science fiction author Michael Moorcock, right? Yeah, um, they all... Uh, came from the Ladbroke Grove neighborhood in London um, near Notting Hill. And they, uh, Hawkwind had come together playing this very heavy psychedelic music, very heavy and very simple, you know, in a way, in a way similar to what the Stooges were doing at the time. Um, And Michael Moorcock um, just happened to live around them. And he, at that point, um, was uh, a very well-known science fiction and fantasy author. And for some reason, they wound up um, collaborating together. Michael Moorcock actually did also have a background in music. So he began uh, performing with the band um, as a vocalist. He would <laughs> get up and uh, deliver these insane uh uh, horrifying um, spoken word pieces uh, about uh, these hideous futures that we all face. Um, and as that developed, Michael Moorcock actually began writing lyrics. Um, and then he formed his own for, for Hawkwind, and he formed his own band called The Deep Fix with some of the members of Hawkwind. And it kind of cemented a different relationship between science fiction and music uh, to the point where um, there was actually real collaboration going on rather than a mutual exchange uh, of ideas or admiration. Hawkwind uh, wound up really defining um, 70s space rock, you know, as it became known, where here we have very heavy, repetitive, hypnotic almost mechanical sounding songs, um, maybe two or three chords at the most, often just two or one chord. And they're just building layers upon that. Um, and it is really, uh, evocative of the whole idea of the endlessness of space. It's a sonic metaphor for, um, journeying through space. Uh, drugs, very, very, very much involved in the, in the entire, uh, dynamic for sure. And, you know, you can't talk about music and science fiction in the 70s without talking about George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. What place do you see his sort of Afrofuturism in the whole thing? Um, What really uh, is the most important thing about Parliament and George Clinton's contribution to science fiction music in the 70s was making it more vastly 
intensely conceptual. It became something that is spread out over multiple albums. There's an entire mythology with an entire cast of characters. The Mothership Connection, which is Parliament's first big statement of science fiction, although, of course, they'd been around for years earlier, that album came out in 1975, and really, it, although it was a couple years earlier, it really parallels what George Lucas was doing with his use of uh, archetypes, um, with uh, his um, broad mythology on which to base uh, a human story. Of course, there's tons of farce and satire and very insane scattered stuff going on in Parliament's albums, their science fiction albums of the 70s. You know, it's not like there's really a cohesive storyline going on there, but it is definitely um, picking up um, the bits of Afrofuturism and music that had been happening up to that point. Sun Ra, uh, although of course that was expressed um, visually and through song titles and album titles and the music itself rather than lyrics um, since uh, Sun Ra's orchestra was an instrumental band. Picking up on that and there was you know, quite a few R&B and funk artists who were dabbling in science fiction to a certain degree um, up to the point where Parliament came out. Parliament was just the flashpoint, the same as any other kind of flashpoint in music. You know, tons of people were doing what Elvis was kind of doing when he was doing it, but he was the one who crystallized the whole thing. Nirvana, uh, the same, you know, uh, in the 90s. And Parliament was the band that took all these loose bits of Afrofuturist music that had been cropping up and forged them into mostly cohesive and, and very compelling statements um, about um, African-American identity, uh, about uh, the role that technology can play uh, in the liberation of people and going back in the past, you know, the whole idea of time travel um, as kind of a metaphor for embracing your heritage, uh, the um, accomplishments of past civilizations, um, for instance, African civilizations. Uh, and, and so George Clinton kind of tied all that up in the perfect package at the perfect time. You know, he uh, has many different accounts of his supposed encounter with some kind of alien life form when he was out with Bootsy Collins. There's the version you print that's in a fishing boat. Uh, I talked to him just a couple months ago, and he vividly and precisely described this encounter, except they were in a car. In the other version, there's Mercury comes down like rain. In this version, Mercury sort of like in Terminator 2 approaches them. So, uh, you know, you're very generous. You say it's not uncommon for... uh, purported UFO encounter survivors to have very different accounts, but it was striking the lack of a boat in the version <laughs> that I got from him. But yeah, we'll, we'll I, I recount that one in the book too, the, and, and kind of explore the fact that he's told some very different accounts of this. So the one, uh, the account that uh, George Clinton and Bootsy Collins were fishing off the coast of Miami uh, in a chartered boat and um, aliens 
came down, an alien spacecraft came down and almost sunk their boat, uh, and so they had a, a close encounter in that regard. Um, I found that in the oddest of places. Uh, that account was in Thomas Dolby's recent memoir that came out a couple years ago. Huh. Uh, of course, Thomas Dolby uh, is someone who has his own ties to science fiction music. Uh, uh, of course, he's the guy behind um, She Blinded Me With Science, although he has some other interesting uh, attachments to science fiction music, particularly with the Buggles. But Thomas Dolby had had a conversation with George Clinton in the 80s when they had become acquainted, and that was the version that... Uh, that Clinton had told Dolby. I wanted to talk about a very unexpected entrant into the book, which is Michael Jackson. You know, Dancing Machine had elements of, of science fiction and then, you know, Don't Stop to Get Enough. It really seemed like he was probably talking about the force from Star Wars in that song and not just in the intro, in the actual chorus. Yeah, exactly. And I think I put a quote there in the book, too, from David Byrne, who said he always assumed that uh, Michael Jackson had been singing about Star Wars uh, in Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Uh, you know, obviously, it's no stretch of the imagination to uh, to see how Michael Jackson liked science fiction. You know, he wound up starring in Francis Ford Coppola's Captain EO um, and elements of the fantastic and the horrific, you know, had always popped up in his songs. But yeah, all the way as far back as the Jackson, uh, Jackson 5's Dancing Machine in the early 70s, he's out there doing the robot on Soul Train to that song, and the lyrics of the song very much have a robotic theme to it. And his fascination uh, with science fiction, you know, never can I don't think he's someone who, you know, ever would have been able to come out and do an overt science fiction song. Um, I think that because of his persona and the way he wanted to connect to the masses was just tuned into a very different thing. But, you know, the fact that he, he definitely had some, uh, some attraction uh, to that, it was, it was pretty obvious. Yeah, for sure. Jason Howard, thanks so much for being with us today. We check out his new book, Strange Stars. David Bowie, pop music in the decade sci-fi exploded. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. And we will be back next week here on Volume, Channel 106 on Sirius XM. And in the meantime, we're a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. I read them all. As always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.